You got to make yourself uncomfortable. You got to make yourself vulnerable for people to tell you, you know what? I don't really like it. But you need to hear that. We're so programmed in our minds that this is the right thing. But unless you can validate with the market, it can be very difficult and very expensive as well. Welcome to the Authentically Successful Show, an entrepreneurship podcast that delivers you real stories and advice from successful founders and CEOs in various industries. I'm your host, Carol Schultz, a longtime professional recruiter, executive coach, thought leader, and creator of talent-centric organizations. Enjoy the show. It is my pleasure today to welcome Joshua Ross, the Director of Entrepreneurship and Assistant Professor of Entrepreneurship at the University of Denver. Since 2009, Joshua has taught undergraduate courses on entrepreneurship, business, and technology in the Daniels College of Business. Joshua is a proven technology entrepreneur with 20 years experience in software development and IT services. He has significant experience in startups and early stage business development, which includes operations, cybersecurity, strategy, digital marketing, finance, technology implementation, and product development. In addition, he has also served as an expert witness on blockchain and cryptocurrency, which I'm anxious to hear all about. Josh, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You know, you're not my typical guest because you're not currently running a company. (laughs) But that said, you have built companies. And I kind of want to start about your journey from you know getting out of school, you got your MBA at DU and you got your bachelor's at Boulder at uh, the University of Colorado. Um, so you've been here a long time. Uh, kind of tell me about your journey from getting out of school and your own startups to where you are today at uh, the Daniels College. <laughs> a- absolutely, and, and thank you. Um, so I, I graduated in 2001 from the Daniels College of Business with, with my MBA. Uh, but I'll, I'll backtrack just a little bit. While I was at the university, um, I did a number of internships uh, in terms of trying to really figure out what I wanted to do when I got out of school. The uh, uh, starting the second year in the um, in the summer before my second year, I started working for a small healthcare startup called Health Trio, and I worked in part of the in marketing and IT. Going into my final year, they asked me to uh, work full time, so I moved my classes to the evening. And I started working full time for them. When I uh, when I was graduating, two thousand one was an absolute terrible job market. Yes, it was. Um, but <laughs> I was fortunate enough to get a job offer for Health Trio, mm-hmm. and I started working for them. Well, I just continued to work for them, uh, and I worked in marketing, uh, product development, information technology. And also uh, in the finance part, because we were raising money and they needed help uh, building out the pro formas as we were uh, going on. They were going on the road to raise money from different BC firms. Uh, so I, I did that for a couple of years and um, it was wonderful. I loved it. It was great people, a great experience. I was able to apply what I learned in school. Uh, but as I was working there, I just wasn't making much money. And I went to my boss and he was based out of Virginia and I was based out of Colorado. And I said, hey, I need to make more money. And he's like, we really can't pay you any more money, but why don't you consult on the side? And so I was working out of my house three weeks out of the month. And then one week out of the month I was traveling. So I started doing IT consulting for small businesses. And what I realized, and this is 2003, there wasn't a computer on every desk. That's right. 
computers weren't networked. There right. weren't, there wasn't this thing called the cloud that everybody's now talking about. And a lot of small businesses were trying to figure out um, how to be more efficient and productive and use computers. So I was like, okay. So I started this little business called 24 seven computer help. And I made up these really cool flyers <laughs> and it's really original name, by the way. Yeah, right. And um, one of our friends, her, her dad owned three Remax offices, mm. you know, real estate offices. So she took the flyers and put them in all the boxes and I just waited for the phone to ring. And guess what? Didn't ring. It never rang. Yeah, right. <laughs> if it was only that easy. <laughs> if it was only that easy, right? It rings. And then the, the rest of the story is yeah. her dad uh, reached out to me and I, and I knew her dad and said, hey, I, I would love for you to come in and I'll pay you for two hours to come teach our agents how to use technology in real estate. I love it. And I was like, absolutely. So I, I built this PowerPoint and I went in and these were the same agents that all had my little 24 seven computer help flyer in their box. And for two hours, I walked them through all these different things that they could do. They were literally chasing me out of the room with their business card saying, I need help. Uh, and and it, it was, it was, it was a learning moment for me in terms of understanding how you build up credibility and you can't really sell yourself on a piece of paper. Right. Um, right. And so I started doing this and, uh, and, uh, it slowly started to grow from individuals to real estate, to some small businesses. And I saw there was a huge opportunity because there were a certain, there was a certain size business that could not afford a full-time employee to handle their IT. And more and more companies were, uh, relying on computers. And so I reached out to a buddy of mine in grad school who actually was unemployed because the job market was still terrible. And I said, hey, I think this is a really interesting idea. And so we spent about six months uh, working through the whole idea, uh, building out the business plan. And our idea was we were going to focus on small business, IT support, computer help. And we are also going to do training, do teach people how to use Word, Excel, Adobe. Um, and our target market was going to be individuals, so home users and uh, small business up to 25 users. So we rented a little place out on Alameda, right at Alameda and Union, basically. And it was a small little office. Uh, we cut, we figured out how much money we needed, what the capital call was going to be. And we were ready to go. And basically, he was going to be the first employee. And I was going to keep my job until I could afford to pay for both of us. The night before our capital call, I got an email from him late at night. And he said, I'm out. Oh, God. And so I was like, okay, I think this is not going to happen. Started to think about how to get out of the lease and do all those things. Next morning, I told my wife, and I can just remember where I was. And I said, you know, I explained to her what happened. And I said, we're not going to do it. And she looked at me and she's like, you love the idea. You got the space. Why don't you do it on your own? And I was like, why can't I do this on my own? But I said to her, I said, if it fails, it's on you. And uh, <laughs> rotten thing. <laughs> I, I think I actually did. And um, so I, I quit my job and I started what it was called Up to Speed Computer Solutions. Mm -hmm. And I hired my first employee and we started focusing on small business uh, and individuals and doing this computer training. The, uh, the computer software training was an absolute terrible idea. Um, and it, it was very difficult to get butts and seats. Everybody can come up with a million reasons why they do not want to go to training. And we went after businesses and they were subsidizing it and still we couldn't do it. But the, the, the IT support and the computer side started really to grow pretty rapidly. So 
we stopped the uh, the computer uh, training site, which was fine because we actually needed the space for the, the training room. We slowly started building out the IT side. Very quickly, we stopped, we stopped going to homes. We stopped focusing on individual users because they were very difficult. Mm-hmm. They would cancel like last minute and then our techs would have a hole in their, um, in their schedules. Right. And, and that was, so that's how we got started. And you spent eight years doing that. And what happened to the company? Yeah, sure. So we, we grew it and, uh, we, uh, uh, moved out of that little office out in Lakewood. We bought a building off of Santa Fe and central Denver. Nice. Um, we started getting clients all over the country. Uh, we did, uh, outsource help desk, web and application development, uh, managed services, which is now called the cloud. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, we actually had customers on different continents as well. And, uh, so the business was going, was going well. And, um, I got to a point where I was just tired and I was burnt out. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a lot of value locked into the company. I mean, it had done very well. We had a really um, strong core of engineers and we were really good at what we did, but it was, I felt it was time for me to uh, move on and try something else. So I uh, put the company up for sale and went through the wholesale process, which was a very fascinating process. Mm-hmm. I'm a very curious person, so I like to learn new things. Mm-hmm. And we sold to a value-added reseller based out of uh, Atlanta, Georgia. And tell me, because you were doing, before you sold the company up to speed, you were doing that concurrently with, is it pronounced Adero? Yeah, Adero. Yeah. So uh, Adero was something I started with a couple of buddies of mine, yeah. and it was an application, web-based application to help endurance athletes uh, train with a coach. And so we uh, we kind of we did those that in parallel for for a number of years, and then when I sold the company, we focused on uh, Adara, and uh, um, yeah. And then and then what is the result of Adara? Is it still in business? Did you sell it? That one, no. We that one we closed down. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. it it didn't have. We we made some mistakes, and I look back on it, and I was like, you know, I understand why it didn't do well. But we just made a couple critical mistakes really around uh, the u- user interface, around the uh, user experience mm. and the UI. Um, we, we built it out in uh, Flash and Flash was dying mm-hmm. and we, we, didn't, we didn't migrate to mobile quick enough. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, you know, I, I don't think, I, I sometimes am shocked at, I'll go on a website and I'm like, God, the UI and the UX is so bad. Like how... I mean, do they have idiots working for them? I mean, do they just not know what they're doing? Do they not have a strategy? I'm like, I, I mean, there are just websites that are just so unuser, not non-user friendly. I just don't get it. Yeah, and a lot of them they spend a lot of money on the the images and the mm-hmm. buttons and the drop shadows and all these things, but you can't navigate it. And there's a lot of times there's like, what's the call to action? What should I actually be doing when I'm on your website? Mm-hmm. Who are you? Why are, do you exist? And what should I be doing? Yeah. Yeah. There's a company I would like to call out, but I won't that, um, I've basically moved everything off of there and onto somewhere else because it's just, it's like, I feel like every time I use it, I've got to call for help and I'm not an idiot. Okay. I mean, I sit in front of a computer all day long. (laughs) I know, I know what I'm doing. You know, I've been in tech for 30 years, but, uh, how did, uh, Strivefar come into your life? Your third, your third startup. That you go, that you founded or co-founded. Yeah, so I was I was trying to figure out what to do after Adero. Yeah, and one of the things I realized was uh, there were all these coaches 
that were building out their uh, coaching businesses, but they had a lot of uh, space in their in their day where they you want to fill it up with. They had the inventory, but they didn't have the demand to fill it up. And so I I got together with a, a, a an old colleague of mine. He would, they were actually a client when I had up to speed, and I pitched this idea of creating a platform that brought coaches uh, connected coaches with athletes so in sports terms coaches. of okay. Got yeah, it. yeah. Training sports coaches. Yeah. yeah. And so we, we spent a considerable amount of time really kind of thinking through the problem. And we, we, we fo- decided to focus original initially on, uh, youth sports. And there's a lot of high school coaches, club coaches that basically they have this expertise, but they have a lot of space in their schedule to have, to create, to use for more business. And so we reached out to and probably interviewed a couple hundred coaches, um, uh, initially around basketball and baseball, or no, basketball and soccer, pardon me, and uh, really tried to figure out where the gaps were in terms of what they were doing, what they needed, and what really their goals were. And then we started talking to um, uh parents of youth uh, athletes, and I happen to be one of my partner uh, in the business happened to be one as well. And our thought was, there's a lot of these athletes that are on the C team or the D team, and they want to move up. And when they are on a club team or their high school team, there's not a lot of focus on individual skills and individual development. And we believed, all right, we could provide that at an affordable price. Um, and uh, also, then we looked at elite athletes that maybe needed um, some special, uh, more curated coaching and that they would uh, use the service as well. And so we spent about eight months building out this platform. And this was our Strive For platform. We, uh, this was all funded by myself and the, the partner. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a pretty interesting team of uh, people both here in the United States and a team uh, in uh, India as yeah. well. That built up the platform mm-hmm. and uh, we launched it. Uh, we had really uh, great um, uh, responses and feedback on the platform. Talk about UI and UX. We spent a lot of time on mm-hmm. that. But one of the a couple of the mistakes we made with this was one, we did not truly ask the right questions of the coaches. What we believed is that they wanted to create a business and that they really wanted to create a business that was sustainable. But what we found out is a lot of the coaches really only used the platform when they needed money, whether they needed to pay rent, pay mortgage, whatever it was. So we did a really good job of driving a business to the platform, lots of uh, requests and, and bookings. But on the other side, the coaches just weren't there to uh, oh. really satisfy the, the demand. So what were the questions you missed, Josh, asking? Yeah, great question. It was around behavior. What we asked were around, <laughs> I laugh at myself now because I never would ask these questions, but, you know, would, would they use the program? You know, I, would, it, would it provide value to them? A lot of kind of leading questions that confirmed affirmed what we wanted to hear. But what we didn't ask were the questions of how would you use it? When would you use yeah. it? How often would yeah. you use it? 
What would be the purpose of this? Because then we could have had a better understanding of their behavior and realized that this wasn't going to be something that they would use all the time. So not a, I'll give you not a need to have, in other words. It wasn't a need to have. Yeah. And I'll tell you something. What was really interesting is we had one coach that charged $1,000 a session for group sessions. And he could fill up as many sessions. He was a little cross coach, but he rarely ever turn, turned it on. Oh my and God. he only did it when he wanted, he needed to pay his mortgage or do something. But, and I didn't understand it. And then on the athlete side, uh, on the athlete side, what we realized was the, around our messaging, and it felt very elite. So this, the athletes that were, you know, not these elite athletes were uh, struggling to connect that this was actually something that was good for them. And we, we, we start, we did a good job educating the market, but we just didn't make that connection. And then on the elite athletes, our mistake was these elite athletes are training six days a week, whether they're club, they're high school, whatever, you mm-hmm. know, six days a week, that's seventh day. They yeah. want to rest. That's right. Like this, that's the last thing they want to do. Yeah. So, so we, we made some mistakes along that. I, I was, I was very proud of what we did. I, I, I love the team. I, I love what we had built but we just couldn't find that product fit. So you left that in uh, 2018, uh, so, so set, uh, through five years ago now. <laughs> and, um, and in 2009, uh, you started as an adjunct professor at DU. How did that come into your life? Yeah, great questions. So uh, when, I had my, when I had up to speed, we would do a lot of pro bono work for uh, people. And one of the uh, things we did was one of our professors at Dama Cabri at the University of Denver, he had this really cool project called Global Text. And he and a professor from the University of Georgia were trying to create a crowdsourced textbook to be used around the world um, free of charge. Oh, cool. And I, I loved it. Mm-hmm. So we did all the web work for them for free and just happy to support it. Mm-hmm. And Don and I were friends and he's like, you need to come teach at the university. It's like, hey, that sounds fun. You know, I went to school there. <laughs> yeah. So they asked me to come teach a class on IT, which was my background. Sure. But at that point in time, my company was really taking up a lot of my time. And then I tried to teach and do both. And it just wasn't a good mixture. But what happened was I reconnected with a number of my old faculty that I had when I was, uh, or professors when I was in school. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so we reconnected, sold the company in 2011, 2012, I was unemployed. So my, I, my family and I were traveling around Europe for the mm-hmm, summer. Mm-hmm. And one of my old professors, Stephen Haig reached out to me and said, I've got this great new, uh, course. It's, it was called gateway to business. And it, and he's like, I'd love for you to come teach it. And what I loved about it, it took all this like theoretical stuff you learned in the classroom, but it was a practical practical application of actually building a business, an app at the time and building that out. And I thought that sounds awesome. Mm -hmm. So I came back in 2012 and I started teaching as an adjunct while I was working once a little bit on first on Adara, then Strive Far. But I worked as an adjunct for um, until I- 11 years, right? Yeah. Yeah. 11 years. And then you, and you went full-time in January of 2020. Yeah. yeah. In 2019, they asked me, uh, Stephen said, hey, you ever interested in uh, teaching full-time? And it was just the right time in my life. Strive forward, shut down. Um, I just, it just kind of worked out for me. And so 
like everything in a university, it takes a little while to get hired, mm. but I got hired. And then I started, <laughs> yeah, right. I started January of uh, 2020, which was a very interesting time in the well, world. Well, yeah. And we'll, we'll talk about that, certainly. Um, and then by the end of 2020, you became the director of entrepreneurship. I did. So did they not have a director of entrepreneurship? Was this a new, was this a new position? Uh, did somebody retire? Were you just that fabulous? <laughs> what? Oh, I was just that fabulous. Yeah, of course you were. I'm yeah. just <laughs> So it's a great question and it's a little bit of a long answer, but at the university at that time, pre-2020, uh, uh, there was the Office of Entrepreneurship that was in charge of the curriculum. Okay. So it was in charge of our Business 1440 course, which we teach like 24 sections a year. So it's a very large course, about 800 students wow. go through that every year. And then the entrepreneurship minor. And so that was where I was hired into was to to be in a, uh, a professor under Stephen Haig in the Office of Entrepreneurship. Okay. They also had this thing called Project Excite. And Project Excite was a um, collaboration between the law school, the engineering school, and the business school. And it was um, at the university level and supported by the university. And it was all that co-curricular stuff, like an accelerator, an incubator, speakers, grants, all of that. But these two entities really didn't connect on a regular basis. And um, when when I was brought in in uh, January, uh, Stephen Haig decided to step down on around March 15th. So mm -hmm. think about where we were are in the world. I think the university shut down like two days mm -hmm. later. And so I was the only one, other one per faculty in entrepreneurship but we had the spring quarter starting in 10 days and all the faculty adjuncts were looking at me like, what do we do? How do we go online? And we spent the next 10 days over spring break learning how to, it's easy to go online, but really learning how to teach effectively online. Mm -hmm. Once, once April rolled around, Vivek, who's the uh, Dean of the uh, business school asked me if I would want to take Stephen Haight's position and be in charge of the entrepreneurship curriculum in the business 1440 class. So I took that over in April. About that time, the university decided to no longer support Project Excite. Um, and they had their reasons. Um, so they asked Vivek if it could actually be brought into the business school. So it was brought into the business school. And I started working with uh, Project Excite on, um, you know, to to figuring out ways for us to collaborate. There was a decision made at some point over the summer in this fall that to, to merge the two and to have one vision, one leader. And um, Vivek reached out to me and asked me if I would be interested in um, being that person. So uh, I started officially as the uh, director of entrepreneurship at DU um, December of 2020. Right. So let's talk a little bit about um, <laughs> being uh, at, at, uh, in, in, in education during a pandemic um, and how you had to adjust, how your students had to adjust. You talked about, you know, going online, right? I, I got to tell you, um, I, I see, I saw this from a lot of different angles yeah. at that point in time. So let's take spring of 2020. Mm. I had a child in middle school. Mm -hmm. I had a child in high school and I had a child in college. Plus I was also teaching <laughs> right. in, yeah. uh, for the University of Denver and we were all home, right? <laughs> we were all sheltering in place. And I believe that I know that it was a very rough time, but I also believe there were the tools available 
to make this and it's still an effective uh, le- learning. And uh, so going online, what you had to do was not only you know figure out how to deliver the content effectively, but also how to engage the students and get them to be a right. be a part of the discussion. Yeah, which was which w- was difficult. Yeah, yeah, challenging sure. in terms of internet connectivity, where the students were mentally, um, you know, being inclusive and equitable, and uh, also being empathetic in terms of everybody was dealing with something different. Right, and it it it, it was tough. And um, the main thing was. And also you're on Zoom, right? And you, you you miss so much and it's hard to have a conversation and, and, get, and gather those, you know, nonverbal cues when you're done talking and somebody else is ready to talk or, and also making sure that the, the, the voices that aren't necessarily the loudest could still be heard. And so those were a lot of struggles to deal with. Yeah, I have to imagine. I'm curious, uh, Joshua, did, in, obviously you're not going to name anybody, did you have some professors in the program who just could not, who just like kind of failed at being online? You know, I'm really proud of my colleagues and what we did at the University of mm-hmm. Denver during the pandemic. I think we did a great job with what awesome. we had to deal with. I will tell you, my daughter at this other university, some of her faculty just mailed it in. They would, her, one of her economics professors just put a bunch Ugh. of YouTube videos up. Seriously? <laughs> and that's what you're paying tens of thousands of dollars a year for? I yeah. don't think so. And, and yeah. I think a lot of people in the teaching profession, profession felt it was their opportunity to check out. To and it was actually that. the opposite. This was yeah. our opportunity to shine and yeah. to take this and make this, which was a horrible experience, make this a a valuable learning experience. And I think I'm very proud of what we did uh, at the university. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. uh, uh, An old friend of mine who does, who, who uh, does a lot of workshops and programs uh, for, for a larger company said there was many, many, you know, leaders within the organization that when they went, um, when they went online, completely fell flat on their butt. They just couldn't do it without being in front of that room full of people. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. It's, it's, you know, I don't know, maybe cause I've worked from home for so many years. So that wasn't, it wasn't for me, it wasn't a big deal, but you know, when you're used to spending your whole life in front of people and then all of a sudden that changes, that's, you know, can be shocking. Yeah. But I heard some great stories. I heard this one, uh, uh, elementary school student, this, this, this gentleman, was struggling connecting with all these, you know, second graders, I think they were, right? And they're all online and they're touching things and they're hitting buttons. Yeah. So yeah. he learned how to play the guitar and started singing to him and started singing the lessons and they would sing oh, along. Fantastic. And it was like, you know what? Maybe you're not mm-hmm. going to have the same outcomes, but at least try to get to that place. Yeah. Well, I mean, that that's what, in my that's what, that's true leadership, in my opinion, right? That's one of the, the factors of true leadership. You know, can you be able to roll with the punches and, you know, make lemons, lemonade? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. How, what, and it's, it's, it's a part of being an entrepreneur, right? You are going, and it's having that entrepreneur mindset. It's like, you're going to face adversity. You're going to have roadblocks. How are you going to work through that? Right? Yeah. How are you going to figure out another way? and to improve that experience. And you know, some of them are going to fail, but some of them are going to turn out great. 
So if you look back on the three, the three uh, uh, companies that you founded and co-founded, what are the lessons that you learned or what are some of the mistakes that you made that you were able to say, oh, aha, and then take into your, your line of work as an educator and improve upon? I, th- I think the most important one is truly understanding your target market. Who is the person you are selling this product to? Who is the person that's going to be your early adopter? Yep. Who is this person that's going to give you feedback? And how are you also then going to reach that target market and create awareness and engagement and a hopefully eventually advocacy for that project product? And so we spend a lot of time with that with our students because it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard for students. It's hard for startups. It's hard for everyone. So that, and then tying that to product fit, really trying to figure out, is this something that the the market needs? Is this something that the market wants? And how are you going to actually validate that? Right? How are you actually going to get that out into the world and validate? And it's hard. And you know what? You got to make yourself uncomfortable and you got to make yourself vulnerable for people to tell you, you know what? I don't really like it. Mm -hmm. You need to hear that. And Mm -hmm. sometimes we're we're so programmed in our minds that this is the right thing. I know this is the right thing. My gut has told me this is the right thing. But unless the market actually can, you can validate with the market, it can be very difficult and very expensive as well. Yeah, well, expensive, that's for sure. Um, How many students do you have in the entrepreneurship minor? We have 113 right now. Okay. And do they come into that minor because they want to start a business? That's a great question. Um, Some of them come into the minor because they want to start a business. And uh, some of our capstone class, they actually spin up a business. Others just realize that they want these tools because they may want to start a business at a certain at a certain point in time mm-hmm. or or they're just interested in entrepreneurship mm-hmm. or they've had one of the entrepreneurship professors in some of their other classes so then they take a second class in the minor maybe not they haven't signed up for the minor and they start to really like it and uh and so there's a there's a number of reasons why uh, they engage in the minor mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the majors all over the map? We don't have a major. We are just... No, no. The majors that people are coming, that that they're majoring in since this is a minor, are those all over the map? Yeah, absolutely. We have, uh, I think, 52% of our minors are actually in the business school. The the rest are from around campus, which is, to me, that is one of the small victories so far. It means we're actually making inroads to other colleges within the university. Um, and then within the business school, they're all over the map from finance to sure. uh, accounting to management, so right. forth. What percentage are women in the program? Uh, great question. Um, I believe we're at 38% right now. It's actually not bad. So uh, what are you doing? Because I do know you mentioned that you were, you know, you're working really hard to um, Im- improve that number, right? Probably, you know, to, to reflect the country, which is, I think women are just north of 50%, right? Um, yeah. But even to bring it from 38 to 50%, what are you doing and what are the challenges you're encountering at, at seeing that through to fruition? Well, we're doing a number of things. Uh, the first is messaging, you know, how we talk about what we do and about entrepreneurship. So we don't use the word entrepreneurship as much. We're using other words such as 
problem solver, creative, mm. creator, innovator, innovation, change maker. Mm. And so we, we're trying to have students nice. understand and be able to identify that, hey, I, I may not be an entrepreneur. I may not identify as one, but I end up identify as these other things. So that's one. The second thing is we're, we spend, I spend a lot of time talking to faculty um, and administration in the different colleges to really get the word about out about what we're doing. And where we've been hyper-focused is around uh, the arts, whether it be digital art, physical art, um, theater, music, and really uh, talking to these students, and a lot of them are females, about the opportunity in terms of entrepreneurship and understanding, especially in that business, you're probably going to be an entrepreneur. You are going to build your own thing, whether it's an art studio or you're going to sell your art or you're going to create your own music. Mm -hmm. And there's so many tools are available now that let us help you do that. And so we, we spend a lot of time on that in terms of messaging, getting in front of people, talking uh, to people throughout the university, which can be challenging at times uh, um, for a number of reasons. And the other thing that we do is we're very intentional about the programming we do. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of our speakers, you were one of our speakers the other night, but we bring in a wide range of speakers. We don't just bring in entrepreneurs that started a company, went through the whole entrepreneurial cycle, then sold it for millions of dollars, and then they moved on. A lot of students just don't connect or identify mm -hmm. with them. So we bring in artists that have been successful and they talk mm -hmm. about how they started their business. They started how they built their brand. We bring in people to teach around storytelling, which I think is a very big part of life and entrepreneurship. Yeah. Yeah. We bring people to talk about negotiations, about, we had one called networking for shy people and because building networks is so important. That's so we great. try to bring all these things mm -hmm. that are not only, uh, that, that are relatable and also provide tools for, for these students. And with that, we hope we're casting a wider net of different types and make it a more a wider net and a more diverse net of people that were that want to engage in entrepreneurship. If you look around, and I don't know if you know the know the numbers on this. If you look around the country, how many you know what? How many universities or what percentage of universities are offering entrepreneurship nowadays? Because it seems like it's gotten much more popular. Like you know, in the olden days when I was in school, <laughs> there was no such thing. Um, great question. And I'm thinking about the olden days when I was in school too, uh, in <laughs> undergrad. I don't know if there was an entrepreneurship program. I was a communication right. major, but I was just in Dallas a few weeks ago for the Global uh, Entrepreneurship Conference, uh, Entrep uh, awesome. Educational Centers. Mm -hmm. And I, I would probably say there's probably four or 500 uh, entrepreneurship centers. Uh, so, great. And they're all, you know, all different levels, all different scales, all different focuses. But yeah, it, it's growing. And there was probably like 15 universities from um, overseas that were at the conference as well. Really? Yeah. Because I'm going to tell you something, Carol. It's very simple. You're either going to work for yourself or you're going to work for somebody else. I don't know what the third option is. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. Um, you know, I, what I, what I was, when I, uh, you know, talked to your, to your group, um, I just, you know, looking out there at so many of these young faces, you know, and, and they're what occurred to me as for so many of them, 
and I can, I'm, I mean, I could say they're, I could, you know, can remember their names or and look at their faces that seem to be completely committed to doing this. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and I know that, you know, you've got a great team of, you know, advisors and, and so on and so forth. Um, do they really realize how hard it's going to be, <laughs> even though you keep telling them? They don't. Uh, no, yeah. I, I think they get it with those that get into our base cap accelerator, which we run over the summer and it's right. this week's in, incredibly intense. They mm-hmm. get it. But a lot of the other students, they, they don't. But you know what? That's okay. Yeah. I, I have a really strong belief um, about what we're doing, but I also realize we're, we are helping to build really quali- quality human beings and yeah. help, hopefully making them successful when they leave the university and competitive in whatever they decide to do. I'll, I'll tell you a, a quick story. We had some two students, uh, these two gentlemen a couple of years ago, they created a wine straw. So it's a wine, a straw that goes into a 750 milliliter bottle of wine. <laughs> and uh, But it had to be, a, a, the cap had to be very, uh, had to be engineered so it had the right uh, airflow. So they worked with the engineering school oh to figure God. this out. I love and it. these guys did a great job with it. And I think they ended up selling like 1500 wine straws. And so they were very successful. I had a, uh, I don't know. I can't remember if he was a alum or just a friend of the program one day say to me, what are they doing? That thing is never going to be a million dollar idea. And I looked at him and I'm like, I, I completely agree. Yeah. Why would you squash their hopes and dreams yeah. like that? But I said, what they have learned going yeah. through this process in terms of prototype, MVP, going to market. Also, they looked at, they tried so many different places to sell Etsy, their own website, Instagram, liquor stores, end caps. They went through that whole distribution. They went through the whole marketing process, the whole messaging process. I said, this isn't going to be right. the final thing they do. But the next time they go do it, they have had so much learning around things that worked and things that failed. And that's what our goal is, right? That is what our goal is. Right. And let me, let me add that if for some reason they decide to go to work for someone else's startup, they'll probably know the right questions to ask. Absolutely. Think how valuable they'll be in that startup where they can wear multiple hats. Yeah. I mean, you know, that, that is the most valuable thing ever, I I think. Right. So, you know, that is the one thing that I think that, that people miss, right. Who's the team? Yeah. You want to, you want to, you want me to come work for you? Let's see who the team is. What's their experience? What do they know? What's, you know, what kind of a culture are you building? Where are you in, you know, product development? Or do you have an MVP? Do you, you know, are you, are you in beta? Where are you? Yeah. And we bring in uh, people that have done it before and, Mm -hmm. you know, you have a startup and you're limited on cash and you're limited on time. You're limited on all these valuable resources and you can bring in people that can wear multiple hats, have Mm -hmm. past experience and really can help move it forward in whatever capacity. Those Mm -hmm. are very valuable people. Let's, let's create people that think critically and can solve problems. So you're an advisor now, uh, since you became the director of entrepreneurship, you're an advisor for the Pioneer Venture Group. Tell me a little bit, tell us a little bit about that, because I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, the, the Pioneer <laughs> Venture Group, I think, is is just a wonderful, experiential, 
program at the University of Denver. So it was started a few years ago uh, by students in the business school and in the law school and a faculty member in uh, the law school, a faculty member in, in the business school. Mm-hmm. And the uh, Burwell family uh, uh, that are alums of the University of Denver mm-hmm. uh, put in the, uh, the initial seed money to get this started. And the focus is for uh, th- this group to invest in startups and they, uh, their deals can be up to $25,000. Uh, okay. They can't be the lead. They have to uh, be a follow on with uh, mm-hmm. a, a lead investor. And mm-hmm. so the fa- there's a faculty member, Chris Hewen, and then myself that advised uh, Pioneer Venture Group. And there's 18 students in it. Uh, and usually mainly law students and business school students, mainly grad and a few undergraduate students. Uh, and they meet on a weekly basis. And then every quarter they meet with the, uh, the advisory panel and they look at deals and, and they, they bring in guest speakers to talk about venture and how to, you know, how to invest in deals. Josh, how did those, how, how do those eight, 18 students get chosen? Um, great question. So they apply. And they get interviewed, mm-hmm. and if they uh, make the cut, they become what's called a limited partner, and uh, and then Love there's it. three managing partners, and the managing partners are generally elected from limited partners the year before, and mm-hmm. so we have three uh, managing partners, and they're all MBA students in their second year, so they'll roll off, and at the end of this, yeah, at the end of 24 academic year, they'll elect uh, three, uh, one to three more uh, uh, managing partners. And it's just so like, like, like other venture firms, are they, are they allowed to make money doing this or not? Is who allowed to make money? That the, the students that are part of this venture fund, the fund can make money. The students can't make money. Got It It, it was funny. One of the managing partners the other day told the students like, Hey, you know what? This is great what we're doing. And we need to be very thoughtful about what we invest in. Mm -hmm. But we may not, we'll net, we won't see this exit while we're still at school unless something right. spectacular <laughs> happens. By some miracle. Yeah. <laughs> right. So uh, I, I want to talk a little bit, you, you'd mentioned you've got three kids. Um, I know that you are uh, a big mountain biker, a hiker, you know, the typical skier, <laughs> typical Coloradan. Um, what, uh, you know, what do you... Do you kind of look at the, the way you spend your free time? You know, what's your what's your favorite way to spend your free time when you're not at school? I know you live out in Golden. It, it's a great question. So my kids are older now. I have one yeah. lives in New York, mm-hmm. one's in right. school down in Durango, and I have uh, one, uh, my daughter is a senior in high school and she drives. So one, only one at home. Yeah. One, only one at home. So my yeah. wife and I have a lot more free time mm-hmm. and we really enjoy spending time together. So we yeah. hike quite a bit together, which yeah. is which is awesome. Um, yeah. And then uh, the other free time is I love I love to mountain bike. I love to gravel ride. And once the snow starts falling, um, I will uh, backcountry ski. I I don't downhill much anymore just because of the crowds. I don't I like dealing. Ugh, with, yeah. Don't don't get me started. I don't want to I don't want to completely de- waylay this whole conversation. Yeah, no. But uh, but I lo- yeah. I love the the Colorado lifestyle. I'm I'm from yeah. I'm from Southern California, so I was used to the water, but I, I love being uh, mm-hmm. in the mountains. We are trying to get to the water more often now, just a couple times a year, but, mm-hmm. and I, I love to read. I, I spend a lot of time reading and yeah. I spent a lot of time on working as a director of entrepreneurship. It takes up a lot of my time between wow. teaching and running yeah. everything, but I love it. I, I, 
I don't really think of it as work. Well, sometimes I think of it as work. Yeah, yeah, well, right. Listen, education ain't easy. I'll tell you that, that I know. My sister was a professor for many, many years and uh, the amount of work she had was just shocking, you know, so. Um, Josh, is there anything that I haven't asked you or that you wanted to talk about before we sign off? Um, I th- no, I think you've done a wonderful job. I just, you're, ju- you're just so easy to talk to. Well, thanks. Golly. <laughs> well, with that said, Joshua Ross, uh, Director of Entrepreneurship and Assistant Professor of Entrepreneurship at the University of Denver. Thanks for being with me. This was a fun conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Authentically Successful Show. Don't forget to click follow to hear more and please leave us an honest review and rating so we can continue to improve and bring you more great stories. If you're interested in being my next guest, please check the episode description for information to apply. This is Carol Schultz. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.